You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, how many of you, is there anybody here that's like me? I'm going to ask a question. I'm just curious. You can raise your hand in church, okay? How many of you are missing sports? Anybody else? Great. Awesome. All right. About half the crowd. First service, I had like three. Nobody likes sports in the first service. Nerds go to the first service. Cool people go to the second service. Just kidding. First service, if you're watching this online. I'm sorry. Okay. And I love you too. All right. There's a place for nerds in this world. All right. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but sports are great. I miss sports. I really am looking forward to them coming back. It's obviously probably going to be a little while. Everything is, uh, you know, so uncertain nationally when it comes to gatherings of that size and what they're going to do. But nevertheless, uh, games seem to be something we like to play. In fact, over the coronavirus weeks of, uh, you know, of quarantine, uh, anybody else rip out some of the board games? I mean, board games became popular in the Capacity House. Uh, puzzles. I mean, board games just seem to, to kind of rise to the occasion. In fact, I just, for the fun of it, totally off script. Top 10 games in the history of the world. Here they are. You don't get this, folks, anywhere else, okay? This is gospel light only. Not in the Bible, but just a side note, all right? We've got Monopoly at number four. I really was shocked, although I do enjoy the game of life. Clue, Candyland, Scrabble, Battleship, Risk, Stratego, Axis, and Alice, and Chess. So here are games we like to play. No question about it. Everybody is into games. So with that said, let me give you a quote from A.W. Tozer about games. Who was Tozer? Tozer was a, a great voice of the past for the Bible, for teaching, and for theology. And Tozer said this, most men indeed play at religion as they play at other games. Religion itself being the most universally played game. Wow. When I read that, I was, I got, the first thought that, that came to my mind was this, I hope that's not true about me. I hope that's not true about us. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, where we're going to find some amazing, serious incidents in the life of Christ. This is a very serious chapter in, in this gospel. It really is. There's a A lot of tension that's going on back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. We see four different encounters. We're actually going to move into chapter 3 for just a little bit. Like I said, there's a lot uh, of of information that I've got to give you in in somewhat of a short period of time. I always have a little more time in the second service, which is good. But I want to start with these statements. There is a difference between Pharisees and followers. There's a difference between the real... And the ritual. There is a difference between personal and performance. And so the question this morning for all of us, including the pastor, is Am I a Pharisee? Is there any Phariseeism in my life? Is there some things that I need the Holy Spirit of God? By the way, let me rephrase that. If you listen to the music, if you prayed the the the, the prayer of confession, hopefully it's already happened. You see, the conviction of the Holy Spirit doesn't start when the Bible is opened. It starts when we begin to go vertical with our worship and understand that before a holy God, our sins oftentimes 
seem to become more, we become more enlightened to what, you know, what they are and just how sin, exceedingly sinful we are. And so in Mark chapter 2, there's a theme word. And that theme word seems to carry itself all the way through Mark chapter 2. You'll notice it because there was this group of spectators. And this group had set themselves up as judge and jury over everything Jesus did. And so we see this all the way through Mark 2, beginning in verse 7, where they say, and I'm going to say it like like maybe they said it because these guys were whiners. Why? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 16. Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 18. Why? Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 24. Look, why? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Who are these people? And why are they always criticizing Jesus and his ministry? Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. Just a quick, brief overview of this group that we see all throughout every gospel. The Pharisees were the major religious keyword. Keyword. The major religious sect of Jesus' day. There were about 6,000 of them in the time that Jesus lived. The word Pharisee means literally separated ones. They were committed. They were committed. They were very committed. But they were committed to a rigid adherence to the ceremonial law. Not the moral law, thou shalt not kill, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, but the ceremonial law, thou shalt wash thy hands like this, and for this long, and this many times. (laughs) Make sure you don't do things that break the Sabbath. The ceremonial law was the passion of the Pharisees. In fact, they had 600 rules regarding what is and what is not breaking the Sabbath. That seemed to be their main issue with Jesus was that he broke the Sabbath all the time. And they outraged Jesus. Now you see scribes mentioned also in in, in this passage. You're going to see as we read through, you'll see the word scribes mentioned. And they are a certain kind of Pharisee. Uh, They were sort of a seminary professor of that day. Very intellectual, professional scholars, if you will. Pharisees were not insincere. Important for you to know that. They were not insincere. They were very sincere about what they believed. They were some of the most intelligent people of Jesus' day. They were committed, highly sophisticated. They believed they were giving themselves to the most important thing a person could give their life to. They were passionate. They were zealous. But hear this, and hear it well. They were blind. They were blind, blind, blind. They couldn't see themselves clearly. The most religious people of their day. But here is the point. Lest we get caught up in 2,000 years ago. Here is the point. The issue is not, can we locate and define the Pharisee in Jesus' day? The issue is, can we locate the Pharisee in our day? And even more importantly, the issue is, can we locate the tendency towards religious 
Phariseeism within each of our own hearts, including my own. That's the issue. And because that's the issue, we're going to have a chance to respond. And our response time is in the form of an altar call or an invitation or a call to prayer and worship at the end of the service. And I pray that God would lead you to do as he would have you to do. So let's go to Mark chapter 2 and ask yourself the question as we go through this, this chapter, am I like that? Am I a Pharisee or am I a follower? Mark 2 verse 1, look at it. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So quickly, uh, did Jesus have a home? Well, Jesus said that foxes had holes and birds of the nest, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You look back at Mark chapter 1 and you understand that this was the home of Peter and Andrew and it would have been a one-room home, a square house with a very fragile roof covered in pitch or some sort of tar overlaid with palm branches. These were not very strong structures. And many, verse 2, were gathered together so that there was no more room. No, no more room. You couldn't get in the house. You couldn't get close to the house. Why? Not even at the door. He was preaching to the word to them. Can I just stop here and say this? When Jesus is in the house, it's going to be crowded. Amen? Oh, listen, who wouldn't line up to hear Jesus teach the Bible? If I were announcing this morning, our guest speaker is Jesus. First of all, you'd probably think the pastor's lost his mind. But you know, the truth is, no wonder the house is full. And they came, verse 3, bringing him a paralytic man. A paralytic, probably a quadriplegic. He was carried by four men because he was not able to walk by himself. Four friends cared enough to get him to Jesus. They were so committed. Jesus was the only answer for this man. And they were committed to getting this man to Jesus, verse 4. And when they could not get him near because of the crowd, they couldn't get him to Jesus. So what they did was... They came up with this genius idea. I'm sure it was one of them that said, dude, I got it. What? Let's go to the roof and let's go through the roof. This isn't our house. It's Peter's house. He won't care. You know, supposed to laugh there. (laughs) Surely you would care if somebody bore a hole through your house to get somebody in it, you know, and So can you imagine this scene, what this would have been like? Think about the fact that it was Peter's house and they removed the roof. And when they had made an opening, and I'm going to tell you something, it was a big opening. To get this man on a cot through a roof to Jesus, it wasn't a small, you know, they would have had to hire Jake. Jake's here this morning. They would have had to hire you, Jake. It would have been a good job. You could have fixed the roof and had a, you know, got a good job for yourself here. Think about the fact that it was Peter's house and Lotus went, Peter, or rather what Jesus was impressed with in verse number five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he was impressed with their faith. That's what impresses Jesus, faith. He says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, obviously, you know, some would like to say, well, what kind of sickness was it? What kind of sin was it that caused this man's sickness? We don't know. That doesn't say anything about that. That's probably not why he was sick. All sickness in the world is because of universal sin. We know that. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. They were questioning in their hearts. They, they, they didn't say anything. But this would have been the Pharisee. Or can I say it like this just for jest? Because I don't see anybody in here like this right now, so I can say it. 
I probably wouldn't say it if I saw somebody in here like this. This was the church member like this. You know what I mean? So they questioned in their hearts. Why? Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they were right in the sense that only God can forgive sins. But they were wrong in the sense that in that room was Jesus who is God. And they were missing the very obvious truth that was right in front of them. And immediately, verse 8, it says, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. You know what's interesting about that statement? Is Jesus is doing that right now. He still does that. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what's in our minds. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows. So the Bible says here that he's perceiving in his spirit. He's questioned, they're questioning within themselves. And he says to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And he gives this surface explanation, very surface, which is easier. Is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, how many of you think that was really what Jesus was trying to get a, across? You know, the issue of whether or not it was easier. Here's the real deeper issue. I said what I said, not because it's easier to say, but, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of God, I love this, Jesus goes right in their face with this truth. He doesn't back off. He says, he, he says okay, enough's enough. Let's, let's just get it out there. I know what you're thinking, and we're going to get this thing clear right in Mark chapter 2. I'm God, okay? I am God. I, I'm Jesus, but I'm God. And he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and that's me. And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we ain't ever seen nothing like this. That's just southern lingo for, we've never saw anything like this. Number one, Pharisees miss the obvious, but real followers embrace the essential. Pharisees miss the obvious. Mark's point here is not the healing. I think sometimes we get so sidetracked with healing. We look at the scriptures, we read the scriptures, and we make the main issue the fact that Jesus healed the man. But Mark's point here, and it's the first of four encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and it seems to contrast true and false religion. It seems to separate Pharisees from followers. And it starts with this, the Pharisees missed the obvious things. Three things just quickly that I noticed. Number one, they missed that God was at work. Listen, when you can't get anybody in the house, when, you, when, the, when everybody around the house is gathered in and there's a massive crowd, could we at least all admit, hey, God's at work. Something's happening here. I mean, God's at work. I'll be honest with you. I, 
Uh, can I just say this to brag on our church for a minute? The national average for returning to church is 30 to 35%. Last week, we had 75% return for our first Sunday. I'm not saying that we don't care about the virus. I'm just saying, I think God's at work. Amen. God's doing something. God is doing something. Yes, he's doing something through the virus. And there's, uh, there's something there we're learning. But there's also something we're learning about how important it is to have community. Amen. Did not you miss it? And we're back and we're, we're here together and we're asking God to move. God's at work. Number two, I think they missed this. Lives were being transformed. I mean, listen, Jesus was making a difference in people's lives. And then number three, Jesus had been sent from God. He was anointed. He was healing people. He was doing miracles. And here's what bothers me about this. Wouldn't you like to think that you would have known? Wouldn't you like to think? Just wouldn't, I'm, I'm going to put myself on, wouldn't, wouldn't I like to think that I would have noticed? God's at work. This is amazing. Step back. I, you know what? I may have been perceiving some things in my mind, but I'm laying all that aside because this is phenomenal. Dude, that man got healed. This is awesome. This is God. He's doing something. Wouldn't you like to think that you would have noticed it? But Jesus said about the Pharisees in Mark, uh, Matthew 23, 23 and 24, Whoa! What is the word woe? It is, a, it is a pronouncement of judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe, mint, dill and cumin you say what in the world is that it's the smallest of all herbs the, the, jesus took the very smallest little unimportant herb and said you worry about that you tithe off your mint dill and cumin but yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law justice mercy faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the other you Blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He gives this incredible picture of a person making their dinner and putting their food through some kind of a grid to strain out the impurities. And, and all of a sudden they, they know, oh, a gnat. Oh. And they reach under a dead camel to get that gnat. What a picture. What a portrait of the religiousness of the Pharisees. Not able to discern what is important and what is not. What matters and what does not. And the purpose in all of us, rather the, the Pharisee I should say, in all of us wants to focus on things of smaller importance and to neglect the weightier matters of the law. Pharisees miss the obvious. Followers Embrace the essential. You know, it's not easy to look at your own life, is it? Let's just face it. It's not. It's not easy for me to look at my own life and point out and admit my faults and my Phariseeism. But can I tell you something that's even more difficult? Is to allow somebody else to do that. Followers are okay with that. Pharisees are not. We need to be transparent. We need to be humble. We need to be willing to allow even someone else to say, hey, yo, that ain't right. Your attitude just ain't right. Watch that. Pray about that. Can I pray with you about that? 
I'm going to close with the second incident. So let's go straight to verse 13. Actually, the second incident is verse 13 through 17. So let's go to verse 18, if you don't mind. And let's just continue on in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why? Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, fasting was only required, anybody know? Once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's it. That's all that was required. Once a year. But the Pharisees thought that they were so spiritual that they were going to fast once a week. In fact, remember the story of the Pharisee who said, I fast twice every week. So these dudes were willing to get really spiritual. We're going to fast twice every single week. So you, you can imagine what it must have been like if you're fasting every Monday and Thursday, let's say. Or maybe every Monday and Tuesday. And you walk past Jesus and his disciples, and they're at Chili's partying down. I mean, they're just having a time. They're eating and laughing and joking and, and ordering chips and salsa and more chips and salsa. And you're thinking, man, what's wrong with those guys? Why don't they see this? And Jesus said to them, he gives three little stories after their little whining complaint. First story goes like this. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. Can you imagine last week at Johnny and Allison's wedding? If Johnny would have, y'all in here today? It's, yeah, John, okay, so Johnny, can you imagine going over there to the reception and getting your wife some, some food or whatever y'all, some cake, cupcake, whatever. Or you cut the cake and you bring it over to her and you say, sweetheart, here it is. And she says, I'm fasting Sorry, not eating today. What? Not eating? It's our, this is our day. This is a great day. You can't fast today. Well, you don't understand, Johnny. We're going to have some really hard times in the future. I mean, things are going to get tough in the future. So I just think, you know, I need to fast today. Can't do that. Doesn't make any sense. And that's Jesus' point. He says in the next verse, the day will come when the bridegroom, this is the very first time he talks about the atonement of Jesus, the day that he would die for our sins and raise from the dead. And that day is today. We're living in the day after Jesus lived and after he died and rose again. And the days when the bridegroom is taken away, he's been taken away. And then they will fast in that day. In other words, fasting has an appropriate place in the life of a believer today as when jesus was here on earth guess what no fasting only parties just parties when jesus was here in fact when we get to heaven no fasting only parties amen <laughs> listen i have a hard enough time fasting 24 hours i mean here, here's the last five seconds of my fast spoon in hand cereal bowl five four three two one fruity pebbles here we come fruity pebbles No one's, second story, second story. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Jesus is simply saying you don't take a piece of a new suit and patch something old. You don't do old with new. You patch old with old. 
Jesus was saying, I'm bringing something new. Hint, hint. I'm not trying to bring back your old religious system, guys. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in your rules and regulations and all of those things from the old religious system. A third example. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh or new wineskins. Now, I'm not a wine person. I'm not a big wine person. I mean, duh, right? I'm not. But I, I did study this enough to know that if you were to take grape juice back in that day and the message here is putting it into a, a new wine skin and you allow that to over time ferment and it, the gastric acids build up and, and, you know, it dries out the wine skin. And, and then you were to try again to take new and put it into that old dried up wine skin, it would burst. You just don't do the new thing with the old thing. So number two, Pharisees defend religious rituals. Followers desire sincere worship. Warren Wiersbe said it like this. Ah, he's my favorite. There's two ways to put an end to the life of an acorn. You can smash it with a hammer or you can plant it in the ground and out of its death will come a new life. And that's what Jesus wanted to do with the Old Testament religious system. He didn't come to destroy the law, but the law had to die. And out of it grew a whole new way of walking with God and knowing God. You know what it's called? It's called the New Covenant. And do you know what it was sealed by? The blood of Jesus Christ. This is the New Covenant in my blood. But church, let's get out of the first century. (laughs) And let's get into the the, the 21st century, into our day of evangelical rituals. There's a lot of them. One of the most popular, the one that seems to surface all the time is is music, right? You know, well, back in 1964, you know, my favorite song was this. And I just want to, I just don't know why we don't sing the 1964 song anymore. Well, first of all, we don't sing it because Jesus said, hey, sing a new song. Sing a new song to me. I want something fresh. I want something exciting. God doesn't want us to live on old spiritual experiences. There's nothing wrong with reminiscing. I mean, I look back and see, see landmarks and spiritual experiences in my life, but God doesn't want me to live on those. God is looking to do something fresh. God's looking to do a new thing. Today, this morning, in the lives of new songwriters... I remember growing up, I was in Bible college, and where I went, there was a, a little bit of a, a bent towards anything other than a certain style of music. So coming out of Liberty University, which was another no-no, that was, they were very critical of Liberty, you would, you would, just, would not have gone there back then. I, now I graduated from Liberty, so obviously things have changed. But, but there were three dudes coming out of Liberty. They had just graduated, and they were starting this group, and... One of the guys said, look, I want to write new lyrics to this new music. And so their names were DC Talk. I remember they were the first, when I was 19, 20 years old, I remember thinking, man, DC Talk, who are these people? 
Who are these three guys? And then I heard several sermons against them and how they were bad and so forth and so on. But that was my introduction to the world of, in fact, hey, why not? Here was their, here was their first song. You ready? Young people, God's doing a new thing, isn't he, in our community? Won't you stand with you me like right now and say, you know, he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. You know, he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. You know, he's doing it. Who's doing it? God is doing a new thing. Now, I just offended a bunch of people, but forgive me. It's the, hopefully, that's not the only part of the sermon you remember. Now, I don't think I offended anybody. I don't. You know why? Because it makes sense. 30 years ago, there were three guys that said, you know what? God's doing something new. And I want to take something that, that, is, that is fresh. And I want to package it a little bit differently so that we can get the gospel out. And today, we've got a movement of new music. That is revolutionizing the world. Thank God for that. I'm excited about it. I was listening to you guys sing this morning. Man, this is a church that knows how to worship. The heart of a follower desires a new, fresh, today thing. Pharisees rise up and say, there's only one way. It's my way. It's the old way. There's no other way. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One of the Sabbath, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So these Pharisees used their own oral law to conflict with or contradict the written law of God. Because, and again, we don't have time to develop this at all, and neither did Jesus. He didn't pay any attention to this. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, I think, I want to say chapter 5, I may be wrong. But anyway, uh, you can see here that this was totally different from the written law of God. Because the Pharisees had their own oral law that always contradicted with the written law. So instead of even addressing that, which he doesn't even address the little grain field situation, he goes into verse 25 and says, have you never heard? Now, I'm not big on sarcasm. I'm really not. Although I do like a little bit of it. And I think Jesus did too. Because this was super sarcastic. For Jesus to say, have you never heard to the Pharisees who were the most scholarly people of their day, they had memorized the Old Testament. Have you never heard? I mean, it was just like, you know, you could, therefore, I guarantee I would have loved to have been in this situation to see what their response would have been. Have you heard what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those that were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. In other words, don't you know that David broke the Sabbath? Now, that would have been like David was their, like, superhero. And he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The point is this, what, what's the greatest commandment? Does anybody know what the greatest commandment is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. 
And so the point that Jesus is making here is this, that the whole purpose of the Sabbath was to stop. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It was to stop and focus on your love for God, to take Sundays to retool, to rest, to restore, to revive, to get fired up for another week of loving Jesus and loving your neighbor. But on the Sabbath, somebody comes up to you and says, what are you doing? Oh, uh, this is my Sabbath day, and I'm getting ready to, and preparing and practicing to love God more and to love others more. Oh, great. Perfect. I got a flat tire. Could you come out and help me change it? Oh, no. Why? Well, because on this day, I practice loving God more and loving my neighbor more. Duh. I got a flat tire. Can you, can, can you practice like in real life? And so Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. By the way, that didn't make him happy because there he goes calling himself God again. Let's go to chapter 3 quickly. And again, he enters the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Here's a man that's got a very obvious problem physically. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Imagine, imagine this church. Someone has a significant health problem. Would we be concerned if someone came into this building with a significant health problem? For instance, yesterday I was hanging out with a church member and we went, I I got a rental car because I'm preaching a teen camp. I know, 55 teen camp, anyway. And uh, preaching a teen camp in Tennessee this week. I'm leaving after church this morning. And I picked up the rent-a-car. It hurts. I've got a great relationship. I've been renting cars from this lady for like 13 years, and we're pretty tight. Maybe Jolie. But she has an assistant now that she hired three years ago. And I've gotten really close to her, too. They're just a wonderful, two wonderful ladies. Both of them profess Christ, and, and we have a great time together. So I walk in. I've got my buddy with me from the church. And, man, she, she, she had no hair, like none. This is yesterday. And so my first reaction was, I got no hair. So I'm just going to, you know, I, didn't, I mean, it was so, I mean, she had long, beautiful hair a month ago. Like many of you, like my wife, like maybe Bree or a lot of like Paula, you know, long hair. Thinking, okay, well, maybe she's into something. So I just, I, I didn't, I just, hey, you look good. You and I, twins. It just came out like that. And it was good that I said that. And she laughed and she said, you know, you're right. Pastor, I, I do look pretty good. And then Jolie said, have you, have you not heard? I said, no, what, what's up? Do you want to tell her? And so she began to tell me that about a month ago or three weeks ago, whatever, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. It's a very aggressive kind. Her face had all kinds of growths coming out of it. Her, her, the, the chemotherapy is just eating her alive, lost all her hair. She's going to have, I think, next week a double mastectomy. Man, we ministered to her, loved on her, got her card. She's got a, she's got little bands. I didn't have any cash on me. I told her, don't let me forget this, but I got to go back and I want to buy the whole bottle of those bands and pass them out because they're prayer reminders to pray for this lady who works at Hertz. And I was moved by that. The church member that was with me, we got back and he said, that was heavy, bro. That was, that was incredible. I said, isn't it wonderful how God, kind of like we sang this morning, 
I think build my life, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will, um, how's it go, Jordan? Put my trust in you and I will not uh, be shaken. Holy, there's no one like you. There's no one like you. Put that part about show. Show your love to those around me. You knew where I was going. That was, that was a moment of build my life. When I was singing that song, I began to weep because I thought about her. I said, God, you let me love her yesterday. We, we, we barely talked about the rental. I don't even know. I didn't even look at how much they charge. I don't, all I could do was just love on her because she was hurting so badly. Nothing else mattered. So here a man comes in with a withered hand. Wouldn't you think that if someone was sick and they were hurting, wouldn't you think we'd be concerned? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. That's their position. And he says to the man with the withered hand, Jesus just says, oh man, he's, come here. Come on, come here, come here. Right here, front and center, let's go. And he says to them, it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, to do harm? To save life or to kill? That shut him up. It says they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He was, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. He wasn't angry at them with an unrighteous anger. That would have been sinful. Jesus never sinned. He had righteous anger. He was, he was grieving at the fact that they did not understand that, that God had a greater purpose in all of this. They were missing out on the glory of God. And it broke his heart. It, it angered him. It frustrated him. The Pharisees went out and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Number three. Pharisees make God's law a burden, but followers promote God's law as a blessing. 1 John 5, 3 on the screen says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Don't let anyone make God's law a burden to you. God's laws are not a burden, they're a joy. They're a blessing. Every time God says don't, you know what he's saying? Don't hurt yourself. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. When we do what God wants us to do, we get blessing out of it. We get joy out of it. We get peace out of it. Not perfection. There's going to be hardships. But the Pharisees were making it a burden. Living for God is such a bummer. So hard. There's so many things you've got to do. So many, things, so many eyes you've got to cross. T's you've got to wear this, do this. Everything's got to be perfect. This got to, this got to. And it just drives you. You can't keep it. You're like so frustrated. You can't do it all. It's a burden. It's hard. God says, you're missing it. God's law is not a burden, they're a blessing. It's a joy to live for God. You know what? I've been happier the last six, seven, eight years of my life. The Capace family, we're so happy. We got, you know, we got rid of those 600 ceremonial, you know, those laws. We got rid of quite a few of those. And kind of, we're focusing on the more important things. And we're finding out that there's joy in living for Jesus. In fact, I think I'm stricter now than I've ever been. I am. I mean, I really believe our family is moving towards holiness in a, in a better way, in a pure way, in a, in a, not a perfect way, but a better way than we've ever moved in that direction before. 
The last characteristic of Pharisee sums it all up in Mark chapter number 2, verse 13, and I'm done. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, that's Matthew, by the way, he had two names. He wrote the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting on the tax booth, and he says to him, this is so cool, Jesus says to Matthew, yo, follow me. And the Bible says he arose and followed him. Now, before I read the next verse, I'm going to give you what I think happened. I think when, I, I just can't imagine it could be much different than this, okay? He arises, he follows Jesus, he leaves all of his tax collectors, pretty rough group, pretty rough crowd, pretty rough trade, a lot of stealing, cheating, lying going on in this profession. He follows Jesus and he looks at Jesus and he says, hey, yo, you want to come over to my house tonight and have a party? kind of a farewell party, I'm leaving my, I'd like to invite all my friends over and just kind of have a good time, I'll order some pizza from Squeezebox, sorry, DeLucas, okay, sorry, Grateful Dead, okay, sorry, Little Caesars, and uh, I'll order some pizza, and we'll have a good time, and just hang out, Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm up for it, let's do it, next verse, ready, and as he reclined at the table in his Jesus just kicking back. Can you see it? I mean, sometimes I think all we see Jesus is this sophisticated dude that wears a suit and tie everywhere he goes. He's probably got flip-flops and shorts. He's just kicking back at Matthew's house. Now, I got a question. I wonder who's there. Look at it. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Reckon those, some prostitutes there? Drug addicts? A few? A few alcoholics maybe? What about people like you and me, unless we get pharisaical about this? Just hanging out at the house. Why? The scribes and the Pharisees saw he was eating with sinners why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he hanging out with them? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Church, when do you call a doctor? When you're sick. When you're sick. I came not to call the righteous, and if you don't mind writing in the margin of your Bible, please write right there, think they are. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. So those who think they are righteous, I came not called to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was saying, I can't help people who think they don't need me. I can only help people who know they need me. You can't have what Jesus offers until you know you need it. It's the truth. That's true at the point of conversion. Pharisees, number four, think they're righteous. They think they're righteous. Pharisees, the followers know they're sinful. Pharisees think they're righteous. Followers know they're sinful. It's true at the point of conversion. And it's true at every point of spiritual growth. For some reason, often after conversion, you know what? I can be honest with you. Can I confess something to you today? When I got saved, I was so Pharisee. 
I used to tell my dad everything was wrong with him. I got all my rules and regulations, and I went back and was so disrespectful because I got so elevated. I got an elevated view of my spirituality that I was better than him, better than my family back home because they did things that I didn't do, which made me better than them. And I got this elevated view of myself, and you know what that is? That's at the heart of the Pharisee thing. Let's take a moment destroy a myth. Here's the myth. The closer you get to God, the more righteous you feel. That's a myth. It's false. Yet so many believe that. If I could just be more faithful, if I could just go to church more, if I could just read my Bible more, if I could just do this, do that, if I could just be this, do that, do this, if I could just be... The closer you get to God, the more righteous you feel. Myth. The truth is, the closer you get to God, the more aware you are of your own sinfulness. And that is the essence of Phariseeism. They begin to think of themselves as spiritual. I am righteous. I set myself up as judge and jury. I see things clearly, and that's wickedness, and that is Phariseeism. You say, well, I need some scripture. Glad you asked. What about Abraham? He's a pretty good guy. Wouldn't you say he was a good guy, father of our faith? Let's go to Genesis chapter 18 on the screen, verse 27. Abraham answered and said, I am, I'm just dust and ashes. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and then he says this, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Jesus appears to Peter in Luke 5, 8, and Simon Peter sees him and falls down to Jesus' knees and says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Revelation chapter 1. John, at the apex of his spiritual life, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. John, the beloved John. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. this so important? Why is this truth so important? It's important that we don't allow ourselves to cultivate a sense that we are really spiritual because we think there's no sins in our lives. I'm I'm really not doing anything wrong. I'm a good person. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm better than the average Christian. You can't kneel at the feet of the Savior. You can't sing the songs we sang this morning. The pure, holy, righteous not be overcome with a sense of your own sinfulness. Pharisees don't have it, but followers do. And so my prayer this morning is to help us to be followers. Sincere, broken-hearted, tender-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning is that we would not look at 2,000 years ago and get caught up in first century church problems, but that we would look at today. Today, deacons, elders, church members, let's look at our own hearts. In fact, that's really the only way not to be a Pharisee is to focus on your, right now, your own sinfulness and not someone else's and say, where is it in my life 
that I'm elevating. I have an elevated view of myself or of my walk or of my my life and where is it that I'm I'm potentially is it my marriage that I'm being a Pharisee is it, is it my leadership is it my being a dad is it, is it my attitude while I sit in church what is my attitude about about God about walking humbly and 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 and, and not making such a big deal over these mint and common little things that don't really matter I'm neglecting the most important things. Would you take a moment and just respond as the Lord would have you to, however that looks. Usually we stand and we open it up, but I'm just going to let you respond as you feel led after I pray, and I'll be at the altar along with, uh, I'll ask Tony maybe to come, another elder, just to be here. If you need someone to pray with you, we'll be up front. Father, I love you. I thank you for this opportunity to bring your word. We're almost done. We just got about a response time is all that's left. And I just pray that you would take this time and use it. God, we come before you and we humbly confess, Lord, that there's a little Pharisee in all of us. And God, we want, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. So shine, Lord, the spirit and truth upon us right now. Illuminate the areas of our lives that need to be confessed right now as sin. May we humble ourselves and repent and walk with you. Thank you for this chapter in scripture. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. It's life changing. In Jesus' name.